G'day, gladies. If my voice is a bit muffled, it's because I'm, I'm actually hiding under the desk for the very good reason that Ian Dunt is back and uh, you know what that means. Well, we've had a couple of wonderful understudies and body doubles in Ian's absence, but uh, you can't beat the real thing. And his timing is perfect because he comes at back to us on the very day that uh, the Boris dancer passes the bat on or the poison chalice to uh, to the rupture trust. Ian, I'm just going to hide down here and let you uh, let you say what you need to say. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's no. It's just it's the boredom, really. I mean, it's just you can feel the boredom watching Liz Truss in in the marrow of your bones and. I mean, we've now just watched the first Prime Minister's Questions with her versus Starmer. Starmer, who I quite admire, is hardly a charisma powerhouse himself. But it's like watching Richard Gere, you know, once he's stood opposite her. She has a way of speaking. There's something about the voice itself. It is so tiresome. Um, And something about the tone and the tempo with which she speaks, that it's almost impossible to pay any attention to the content of what she's saying, which in itself is actually quite helpful because the content of what she is saying is platitudinous in the extreme. I mean, it is basically just a series, a conveyor belt of political cliches with no real content to them. I mean, at one point she said, I stand for hardworking people who want to do the right thing, which of course is one of those political statements that you have to negate in your head and think, well, if, if the negation of it is implausible that any politician would say it, then surely the statement itself has no meaning either. So it is very tiresome and, of course, made even worse by the fact that you sit there experiencing the boredom, knowing that you're going to face this for at least another few years. Ian, I expected fire and brimstone, and you're giving me boredom. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry to, sorry to disappoint. Um, I suppose, what do, we, what do we have to look at? I mean, she's, she's now announced her cabinet. The cabinet is, I mean, very, very, very right-wing. It's probably a sort of as right-wing as we've seen for a while, but right-wing in, in a slightly different way to what we had before. So it's not so much the populist element, although that may well come out. It's more the sort of classic neoliberal, laissez-faire, you know, Adam Smith Institute um, sort of form of free market economics. And these are the guys that she has packed in to pretty much every position in cabinet. And it's a pretty good indication of where she's going to go, which is, you know, just sort of classic, almost sort of, you know, 70s, 80s sort of right wing. That seems to be the, the area that she's going to go for. And yet it, at this point, it's actually quite hard to work out how she's going to behave. She's quite a sort of oddly mercurial character, although I think mercurial makes her sound more mysterious and interesting than she truly deserves. Um, if we look at her time of foreign secretary, a foreign secretary, she comes in and, you know, the, the UK has got this debate that it's sort of going through with Europe over the Northern Ireland Protocol. She spends the first few weeks actually being much more reasonable, much more moderate than her predecessors. And then so for a moment, we're all like, oh, hang on a minute. Maybe she's actually going to be productive. Maybe she won't be so fire and brimstone and pointlessly nationalistic about it. But then she switches. She passes the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, just one of the most toxic pieces of legislation I've ever, I've ever seen, really. I mean, full of really disturbing ministerial powers and a, an active attempt to break international law. So really looking at that kind of behaviour, you look at her now in Downing Street and you think it's just very hard to work out which way she's going to go. 
It was interesting that she didn't win by the predicted landslide. She got, what, 57% of the vote to uh, Rishi's 43. Yeah, nowhere near as, as, as sort of swinging as we thought. I suspect that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, the, the first thing that happened there is that Tory members have swallowed this stab-in-the-back myth about Boris Johnson. I mean, it's extraordinary to watch the way that they talk about him now. And, and the same with the MPs. They forget everything about Owen Paterson, the lobbying scandals, the sex scandals, the partygate scandals, the incessant lying, the law-breaking. All of that is as if it never happened. And instead, all they keep on saying was, oh, you know, did tremendously on Brexit. Absolute abject nonsense, of course, but they say it all the time. Did tremendously on COVID. His record on COVID was that thousands of people died that didn't need to die because of his prevarication and delay. Oh, and did very well with Ukraine, which is a sort of irrelevance because any prime minister in his position would have had the same position towards the Ukraine issue. Um, so that's really all they say. And they've come up with this idea of, oh, he didn't really go for the reasons that we all remember happening two or three months ago. He actually went because he's been stabbed in the back by these MPs. Now, that this is, this is like an echo of the, uh, of the deplorable's defence of Trump. Yeah, exactly. It, it's like some kind of very tedious black and white version, you know, on a faded, broken TV of what's going on in America. America is like shocking and traumatic to watch. And here it's just done in this sort of tiresome, buttoned up kind of way. But it's, but it's fundamentally the same intellectual and moral process that's happening, the kind of laundering of a moral reputation through the rejection of objective reality. Now, I think most of the reason they found that such a seductive narrative is because they were faced with these two people. They're just like, well, they're both obviously obviously rubbish. You know, I mean, Liz Truss is presentationally, I'd say by distance, the most ineffective prime minister this country has seen in the modern period. And in that, I'm including John Major and Gordon Brown, who were hardly sort of, you know, highly, they, they were hardly Barack Obama. But nevertheless, she is really presentationally profoundly inept. Rishi Sunak was marginally better, but he was at about the sort of level that you would have expect of a kind of uh, an ambitious junior minister. In any sane political system, Rishi Sunak would have reached the position of an ambitious junior minister. He certainly wouldn't have become Chancellor of the Exchequer. And the fact that he was running to be Prime Minister was, I mean, just laughable. And yet he was streaks ahead of her in terms of competence and the capacity for basic rational thought. So I think presented with that, Tory members just reverted to the stab in the back myth, but they couldn't quite maintain it. So when the results came out, you did see that, that slightly more of an edge from Sunak than you would have expected. Because they were looking at her and thinking, well, my God, she, she really is truly dreadful. Have they driven a wooden stake through Boris's heart or is there any chance that he may rise again? Oh, he definitely wants to come back. I mean, he can barely stop sort of dropping hints about the whole thing and he knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, he, he does it incessantly. He leaves statements very open-ended. He really makes it clear that he will come back if needed. And of course, he, what he's hoping for is that he will be needed by virtue of the fact that she's expected to be an electoral liability of the highest order. So he's going to hang around. However, events tend to not work out in the way that people expect. And I suspect he's going to really struggle to stick around on the backbenches, which he will consider a humiliation while this is going on. Of course, there's the other aspect for him is, is the money. You know, he was struggling with living on, on the 
prime ministerial salary when, when he was in Downing Street. He can very quickly make an awful lot of money through book deals and through after-dinner speaking. Appalling, of course, that that's the case, but he can quickly make millions of pounds doing that. And I think the temptation will be for him to start taking that money with, with quite a serious dose of, of regularity. So for the moment, he clearly intends to sit there for what he thinks will be six months, 12 months, maybe 24 months, while she falls apart and then sweep in and take over. I suspect the reality of what that plan will entail and the patience and humility it requires will be too much for him. We're talking to a remarkably calm Ian Dunt. Now, she has a habit of repeating herself and she's promised to not only to deliver, Ian, but to deliver, deliver, deliver. And what a problem or part of problems she's got to deliver on. Oh, she faces, uh, by distance, the most awful entry of any prime minister that I've ever seen. I mean, the first one is energy prices. If you, you know, within weeks, energy prices are going to go up to around three and a half thousand pounds a month. Now, as soon as that happens, you know, people will die. And people simply cannot afford to feed themselves. People can't take that kind of hit to their income. Um, and businesses will start closing down. So she knows she has to do something about it. But her, her approach, again, this is the free market thing, uh, avoids taking on the private sector at all costs. She just refuses to do a windfall tax. At the moment, she's toying with and may be about to step back from, but seems to be toying with the idea that the government will fund the energy companies, give them a bit of a loan, basically, so that you can protect consumers. But then consumers will end up paying that back over about 20 years of higher prices just to make sure that there's no windfall tax on the energy firms. She's also facing, I mean, the, the, the extent of industrial strikes that's about to hit this country in winter is absolutely astonishing due to inflation. I mean, you look at us, it's hard to find sectors that aren't on strike when it goes from rubbish collection to barristers to train drivers um, and, even, and even talks around teachers. I mean, almost every sector has got some kind of industrial dispute boiling up and the Conservative Party, as it stands, refuses to get involved in those disputes. It refuses to take part in the talks. Hasn't she um, plighted her trust to the National Health Service? Yeah, well, I mean, that is... It's actually hard to describe just in what a bad state the NHS is in. I mean, the stories that you read are of people dying because ambulances don't arrive, people having strokes, the ambulance takes an hour to get there. When they get to the hospital, they're kept in the ambulance outside of the hospital because there's no room inside. You know, you see TV news reports of people that have spent two days in, on a stretcher in a hallway waiting for something to happen. I mean, it is an absolute state of disrepair. And this is in the summer. I mean, when we get to the winter, especially given the price of energy, that is going to become a very, very severe problem indeed. But again, the thing is, to fix the NHS requires sustained attention. I mean, it's the kind of thing we did see it briefly between 2001 and 2005, where you sit down in Downing Street, this is the sort of the second half of the Blair period, with intelligent experts like Michael Barber, you get a delivery unit, you work out the metrics, you work out the benchmarking, you see what points you need to get to with a variety of departments, not just health, in order to achieve the outcomes that you want. But that is not what she is able to do. It's not what Boris Johnson does. He didn't have the intellectual capacity or the sustained attention to do it. And it's not really what she's very good at either. In fact, in her case, she's moved those Downing Street units out into the cabinet office away from the heart of government, which tends to suggest that she won't be capable of the kind of detailed policy work that you need if you're going to actually address the problem. You mentioned Northern Ireland protocol before. How is she going to tackle that? We just don't know. 
I mean, it's, it, it's so hard to get a sense of what she's actually about, partly because the brain shuts down in, in boredom as soon as she starts speaking, but also partly because th there's no real consistency to her actions. I mean, again, remember, you know, she was a Remainer. You know, she said that, and then she turned into an extremely evangelical sort of Brexiter. And even said during one interview, it's okay to change your mind, but only if you've changed your mind in the direction of Brexit. <laughs> Quite an extraordinary philosophical and epistemological proposition. Um, again, we have that period when she's foreign secretary, where she says, right, fine, I'm going to be a bit more sort of, a bit more cooperative, a bit more moderate, and then quickly switches. Now, we have now seen... I beg your pardon, I'm so sorry. That is my dog, and, and that has already happened to us before. Thanos, do be quiet. I'm trying to talk about the Prime Minister. And, uh, I think it's a voice of protest, that dog, I think. It's a very it's, astute it's, it's dog. Every time I, well, as, as soon as I say her name, he, he knows the correct <laughs> way to behave. Um, so now that she's come in, she started to change her tune again. So during the leadership campaign itself, she was extremely vitriolic. Um, against Europe. I mean, she even said at one point, it's absolutely humiliation on a national level. She was asked, is, is Macron, the president of France, a friend or a foe? She was unable to answer that question. She said it had yet to be proven. Not something, by the way, which she was not a, a kind of form of reasoning she was forced to delve into when she was asked about Donald Trump having broken the law. She was told then, and then she said, oh, no, no, that's fine. We, I can't make any comments about someone who might potentially run for president in the future. So that gives you a sense of the kind of that she was dealing with at that stage. However, since she's come in, there's been a slight change. Suddenly she said she's not going to trigger the article that would, that would basically sort of break the Northern Ireland Protocol, the agreement with Europe, and instead she's going to enter into talks with the Europeans, see where they can go. Again, it might just be the same as when she was Foreign Secretary and add up to absolutely nothing, or it could be something. At the moment, that she's so vacuous, really, that we just can't tell. Ian, what about the new Cabinet? Who's in and who's out? Collection of right-wingers, really, um, and loyalists. Uh, so Kwasi Karteng is a very, very close friend of hers, um, is the Chancellor. Theresa Coffey, very, very close friend of hers, um, is in health. It's interesting, by the way, that she, she hasn't kept a single Rishi Sunak ally around the Cabinet table, not one. I mean, usually you will always see some effort to sort of reach across the party to heal the wounds. Absolutely none of that. She's pushed them all out of the cabinet, which in itself is quite a dangerous gambit because what it does is it creates the incentive and the network outside of your government on the back benches to, to challenge you in future. She's also got, I mean, most disastrously of all, Suella Braverman, who was Attorney General, easily the worst Attorney General this country's ever had. Uh, no functioning brain whatsoever to speak of. She has now been made Home Secretary. I mean, she is a powerfully reactionary figure. I mean, you could actually honestly say that she's more right-wing and more populist than Priti Patel. Ian, so will, will Sunak spit the dummy or will he hang around in the hope of a second bite? That's a good question. And I don't know the answer to it. It's such a strange... It's the same incentives that you'd see with Johnson. So on the one hand, you want to stick around in Parliament to see which way this goes. No one has a lot of confidence in her, no one at all. Not in journalism, not in the Tory party, not in the membership, not in the parliamentary party, nobody does. So they want to stick around thinking, oh, maybe I can benefit, you know, when she inevitably collapses. However, it's that humility thing. You know, I mean, the, the, what, Prime Minister's 
themselves, let alone candidates for it, hardly ever stay in the Commons once they leave. I mean, Blair couldn't get out fast enough. Brown pretty much the same. Cameron exactly the same. Ran off to make some money. Theresa May, to her credit, stuck around and is there now on the back benches. But it does take humility, you know, to go to the same workplace, but now your status has massively declined. And the way that people talk to you is, of course, entirely different. So I don't know whether he'll have the kind of character to stick up with it. Ian, great to have you back. Ian Dunconnellness with the I newspaper, our regular UK commentator here on the Little Wireless program. G'day, potties. If you like discussions that get beyond the headlines and help you make sense of the big trends in business and politics, check out uh, Saturday Extra with my colleague Geraldine Duke on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>